Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, first book in the New Testament. If it helps, it starts with an M. So we've started working our way through the book of Matthew on Sunday nights, learning more about the rabbi we follow named Jesus. The last two weeks, uh, Josh was teaching um, uh, over Matthew 1 and 2, and we were getting like the origin story of Jesus. And this week uh, will be the last uh, kind of teaching on that, Matthew chapter 3. Um, it's amazing because it stirs up all of these questions, Jesus' origin, you know, uh, what's his family story? How did it impact him? What were the circumstances of him coming onto the scene? And how do those circumstances influence how we see Jesus? And tonight, we're going to see the context into which Jesus begins his ministry. So let's start reading together in Matthew chapter 3. Look down at your Bibles and uh, start reading with me. In those days, you can stop right there. We're not getting any further right now. Okay. So in those days, uh, uh, when Matthew says that, that, that should cause us to think, in what days? That's a, that's a fair question. Think of an old man like reminiscing about the distant past. Uh, the details are definitely important, but so are those like gut feelings associated with the details. In those days, God's people were oppressed by the Roman Empire. There was an alien pagan culture uh, pressuring the people of Israel to cease being the unique people of God and to be assimilated into the Roman culture and way of life. Sure, uh, Rome gave some protections to what they perceived as bizarre Jewish religious beliefs and practices, but it was always on Rome's uh, terms and by their good graces. Rome was trying to, to force Israel slowly but surely to give up their identity and often at the end of a sword. And so the people of Israel were crying out to God to save them, uh, to deliver them. Now God had promised a, a Messiah, a, a king, who would usher in a new kingdom for Israel and save them from their enemies. And, and this promise fueled Israel's hope for deliverance. It's interesting, though, when you read the Old Testament, and there's a lot of it, uh, there's a motif that is prominent. The people of God uh, rebel and, and reject him and his ways. They then fall into the hands of oppressors. They then cry out to God, and God responds in, in some way and delivers them into freedom. Rinse and repeat. So oppressed by Rome, Israel cries out. They know how to do that. I mean, who knows? The Messiah, the Messiah, the promised king may actually come. But in those days, in the days Matthew is talking about, because of Israel's rebellion against God, uh, there had been no authoritative prophet of God, no one to speak on God's behalf to the people for over 400 years. There was silence from God. So you had oppression, an identity being slowly suffocated, no Messiah, and silence in those days. So now let's, let's keep reading in, in Matthew 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. 
This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of, of camel hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. So on, onto the scene comes this guy named John the Baptist, that's, which is kind of a weird way to be known by. He wasn't like Southern Baptist. We'll get into that later. But uh, clearly the guy had something to say, though. Matthew wants to uh, let us know that, that uh, John was saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven, or that's just another way of saying the kingdom of God has come near. Another way to translate this could be turn from the way you've been living and thinking because God's rule over the world through his Messiah is starting to spill into reality. Whoa, so uh, you have over 400 years of silence, and then John enters into the story and starts preaching with authority about God's reign breaking into the here and the now. But notice his emphasis. Before the wave of God's authority comes crashing in on reality, you, Israel, don't worry about Rome. You, repent. Get your life and your mind in line with the king or else the wave will crush you as well. And it's like, how, how about that for breaking 400 years of silence? Whoa. But Matthew wants us to know that God is, or John is tailor-made to, to, to speak this message. Matthew identifies John with this prophecy from the prophet Isaiah who, who spoke over 700 years earlier about one preparing the way for the Lord. And, and also notice, this is kind of a weird detail that Matthew would like put in there. It's like, why would you let us know what he was wearing? Uh, but uh, John's clothes were kind of weird. Uh, what's interesting, like the clothes uh, of John were an indicator. Like, for us, we don't understand that, but uh, for Matthew's first century audience, they would have said, oh, wow, John the Baptist even dresses like a prophet from back when God was still speaking. It's kind of like someone who relates to and identifies with, like, you know, a punk rock worldview and, and values. Uh, that worldview and those values tend to make their way into, their, into the clothes of the punk rock people. Uh, kind of like, I guess, like these guys. Do we, have, do we have this picture here? Yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> so I guess, uh, so I just want to be clear so everyone's on the same page. Uh, so that's Josh on the right. The cowboy boots is Josh. Mike, who's doing the sound. Mike, don't, don't mute me or anything. That's him with the red hair. And Patrick is the far left guy with the long hair and the beard. Um, <laughs> And they were in a punk rock band, and I guess there's snakes, something to do with snakes. I don't know. Um, you know, actually, where's Patrick? Patrick, we have posters of these, right? Lots of them, okay? So if you want one for free, for free, you can have one. You can hang this up in your bedroom or bathroom or something. I don't know. Whatever you want to do with that. Look at that snake. Isn't that amazing? So kind of like how you can tell by people who dress uh, in interesting ways, what their worldview, what they're all about. Uh, John's garb, his, his, his clothing would have been this obvious outward sign, what he was all about. He's a prophet of God speaking on God's behalf. One scholar described uh, John like this, not like that, like this, yeah. <laughs> John the Baptist is rough. 
He appears a little crude, a little fundamentalist, a little fanatical, and yet he was and still is God's chosen instrument for preaching the repentance appropriate for the coming of God's Messiah. So how did the people respond to this weird guy, John? Let's look down in verse 5 and keep reading. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So it worked. People actually like responded. He's successful. Uh, and now we see why he gets the name the Baptist. He's not Southern Baptist. He's uh, baptizing people. Uh, people respond to him because they really do believe he's speaking on behalf of God. And so they were baptized as a symbol of their commitment to follow God and his ways and to be in line with the coming kingdom and Messiah. I mean, can you imagine just the hope that would start to spring up in the people here, oppressed, just losing their identity, slipping away, and then the whispers, hey, hey, did you hear about that guy, John? He's kind of crazy, but I think he's legit. We should go check him out. I mean, the people uh, that, that were responding to John when they heard him say that the kingdom of God was breaking in, they would have assumed that this meant that, that the oppression of Rome was soon going to be, come to an end. Soon they would be freed politically and religiously. Soon they would be able to be the people of God without harassment. Now, Matthew provides us with more than one sentence uh, of what John spoke. Obviously, he didn't just walk around saying that one sentence, repent for the kingdom of God is coming, and everyone was like, oh my gosh, I need to get baptized. He said more. Uh, so let's, let's keep reading to hear more of what this guy had to say. Verse 7, but when he, that is John, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees who, uh, side note, uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees are just the religious and political elite and leaders of Israel. Uh, so when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Okay, so yeah, I hear you. He's, he's like one of those kinds of prophets, right? Uh, the fire and brimstone, you know, the kind of prophet that I guess that was like would be standing on a street corner yelling, you know, one of those kinds of prophets. But I actually really, I, I love John uh, because he plays a really valuable role here. He's like a bridge to the story and the culture of the Old Testament. And he plays this really important part in preparing the way for the Lord, as Matthew wrote. And I think, uh, as a modern reader, uh, he does this really wonderful job of confronting our discomfort uh, with the story of God in the Old Testament, just the story that's to the left of Matthew. 
even though the Old Testament is a, is a vital and valuable part of the story. I once uh, had a coworker of mine at Fred Meyer, and I know some of you are here tonight, so it's none of you. Don't worry. You don't have to be like, is he about to tell a story? No, it's not you. Uh, there's this guy that I worked with. Um, I was working there full-time, and then when I came to work for the church part-time, I, I stepped down to part-time at Fred Meyer. Um, and so I had this coworker come up to me. I was, I was doing whatever. I don't know. I was filling cheese or something like that. And he came up to me, and he's like just a super, super kind big teddy bear kind of guy, simple dude, just but super kind. He comes up to me, he's like, so, I hear you're going to be a preacher. And I like kind of turn, I was like, I don't know how to answer that because I have no idea what you mean by preacher, but we're in a grocery store. I can't really get into nuances of what I'm doing for the church. So I said something like, yeah, uh, in a way. Um, and then he went ahead and told me uh, just uh, what he believed uh, about God, which was uh, just kind of a, a vague understanding of something supernatural, something bigger than him that he uh, had associated the name God with. Um, and I just told him when he told me that, I was like, cool, hey, uh, hey, man, you should just read your Bible so you can get to know uh, God better. Uh, pretty straightforward. Uh, to, to which he responded with this really suspicious, like, look, uh, he was like, the Bible? You mean the Old Testament? He's like, because someone in my family once told me that if I read the Old Testament, it'll make me stop believing in God. Because, you know, like, it has all that bad stuff in it that smart people say proves that God doesn't exist. And I'm just like, oh, Lord, uh, I'm literally standing in, Fred and in front of shredded cheese right now. Like, I, I'm working. I, I, what am I supposed to say in response to this? Uh, I can't get into, like, no, the biblical interpretation, hermeneutics, and the meta-narrative of the scriptures, and it's just like, all right, hey, man, don't worry about it. Just, uh, I'm not telling you to, to read Deuteronomy or something. Just, uh, just, just read about Jesus. That's it. Don't, don't, don't sweat it. Just, just read about Jesus, which is fine. I mean, he can save the, new, the Old Testament for later. But I think there's this like subtle discomfort with the Old Testament that uh, our culture has. But it's actually uh, something that's not new. Um, when, when we compare what we find in the Old Testament and uh, what we see with Jesus of Nazareth, uh, it can often create this cognitive dissonance. And uh, this has been going on for like 2,000 years, and, and people have come up with some pretty bad and bizarre solutions to try to ease their cognitive dissonance. But here in Matthew, we find ourselves like in the safety of the New Testament, right? Like this is, a, this is like a gospel of Jesus. There's grace and love and forgiveness. And then John is here ruining it by talking about judgment and fire. How is this, how is this the guy that's supposed to prepare people for Jesus? I mean, really, like if Jesus is love and forgiveness and stuff, how is this the guy that's going to prepare people to receive his ministry? Well, uh, it may shock you, but John and Jesus actually don't sound that far apart. We have here John saying the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus says every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You see, I put the, the scripture right there, Matthew seven nineteen, just in case you didn't believe me. Okay, next one. There's more. When speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees, he called them, you brood of vipers. Jesus, when speaking to the Pharisees, said, you brood of vipers. Maybe they were just known as 
being kind of like snakes. I don't know. John, uh, talking about the winnowing fork and gathering up stuff, says gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Jesus, explaining one of his parables, says, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wow, that one, Jesus has even more of an imagination than John. So you might be feeling like a bit uncomfortable right now. It, is, that really, is that really Jesus? Love, forgiveness, grace? Yeah, actually, yeah, that is. Jesus talked about things like judgment and fire. Like John, Jesus is an Israelite. Like John, Jesus has been raised reading and memorizing the Old Testament. Like John, Jesus is a prophet. He's not just a prophet, but he's not less than one either. The paradigm and story that John is in and speaking into is the same one that Jesus is in and speaking into. It's God's story, and it begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. You see, judgment is part of the story of God. But we have to understand judgment uh, correctly. Uh, this is why sometimes we get a little uncomfortable about it. Judgment is, is not like a dad taking off his belt, ready to beat the world in a furious rage for being bad. It's God's deep, profound love meeting injustice and evil and rape, lying, cancer, and sin. It's God's care for his creation confronting the things that are tearing it to pieces. But humanity finds itself in in an interesting predicament. Uh, We are part of God's good creation, made in the image of God with with tremendous value and, and deep worth. And yet we are also part of the problem. We contribute to the destruction of the goodness of creation and the rebellion against God. So God must also confront humanity in order to set things right again. And this is part of judgment. But what about the dissonance with the Old Testament and and the apparent discontinuity between what John the Baptist represents and what Jesus is all about? First, uh, to put a shameless plug, we did this uh, series last year called The Year of Biblical Literacy with an intentionally large part of it being talked about uh, or talking about the Old Testament. Understanding how to read the Old Testament is vital to what you read in the Old Testament. And it's all online, so I can just say go listen to the podcast. There's tons of teachings. Go read. There's videos. Go do all that and learn, please. It's great. Second, uh, we need to appreciate how much Jesus draws on the Old Testament. And I just want to give you a, a few examples Jesus, oh, that's the Jesus we know, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Deuteronomy 6.5, which was written a considerable, a considerable amount of time before Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Okay, next one. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Again, vintage Jesus. And then Leviticus, everyone's favorite book. Leviticus 19.18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. And then last one. Jesus, if you love me, keep my commands. Deuteronomy 11.1, love the Lord your God and keep his requirements, his decrees, his laws, and his commands always. Jesus' teachings are full of these whispers, 
these shadows and parallels with the story of God in the Old Testament. And if you miss these connections, you'll lose out not only on the depth of Jesus' teachings, but also the continuity between the Old Testament and what God is up to in Jesus of Nazareth. Now, John the Baptist is like this lit-up neon sign flashing, reminding us of the story of God up to this point and laying the landscape of where Jesus is stepping in. So let's continue on in the story because we're not quite done yet. Verse 13, look down. Let's start reading. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Why, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now, for it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. So I'm just going to like say, hope, I think what probably most people are thinking, Jesus is kind of a strange dude. Like, what is, what is he doing? John said that, that the one coming would baptize in spirit and fire, and spoiler, it's Jesus. And so Jesus shows up on the scene the first time we see him as an adult, and he says, hey, John, hey, man, baptize me. And it's just like, excuse me, Jesus? Like, uh, you, you are making it a little bit difficult for us to understand you. Could you please get into your little box so we can understand you more easily? But let, let's just apply a little bit of logic here, and it'll help clarify the situation before we continue on. Does Jesus need to be forgiven of sins? No. Okay, there was three people who knew that. That's good. We have a, we have a long way to go. <laughs> No, he doesn't do things that are rebellious against God's authority. So if it's not for repentance, why would Jesus be baptized? Let's keep reading in on the story and find out. Verse 16, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This moment is key to this entire passage that we've been reading tonight. God speaks identity over Jesus, and, and God's spirit is present, making himself known to him. Identity and the, the power of God, these two things that often go hand in hand in the scriptures. How we understand this passage informs how we view baptism today. Firstly, Jesus is baptized as a public display or public pledge to live his life holistically in tune with God. It's his way of starting his ministry, coming onto the scene with a declaration that says, I want to do the will of God more than anything else in my life. Secondly, Jesus enters the waters of baptism to align himself with the identity that God speaks over him. He obeys and is baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness in his words even though it seems a little weird to the guy doing the, the baptizing. And, and the story, I mean, the story continues on uh, from there in chapter 4, but, but we're stopping here for tonight with Jesus the Messiah, baptized by John, and the Holy Spirit coming, and God's voice speaking identity over Jesus. So what does this story have anything to do with us tonight in Vancouver, Washington? I think three things before we end tonight to think through and respond to, uh, respond to appropriately. That is baptism, story, and identity. At Van City, we think uh, 
baptism is really, really important, like Josh was talking about. There are uh, no doubt, though, a a few different opinions on baptism among followers of Jesus, but we think we're right. Just, I mean, jokingly, but kind of we do, obviously. We wouldn't believe it if we thought we were wrong. But we really do think baptism is incredibly important for a follower of Jesus. And here are some reasons. For instance, um, Matthew's biography of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, is bookended by baptism. He starts here with baptism, and he ends his ministry with instructions for his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We also see in the book of Acts, the, the, the book that, that talks about the early church and how it began, uh, we see people who put their faith and trust in Jesus, and then they would be baptized, like boom, boom. There seems to be this consistent connection between the two. It'd be like, oh, yeah, you want to follow Jesus. Hey, that's great. Okay, let's go find some water and see you and, uh, and, and baptize you. The scriptures have a really high view of baptism, and, and we want to as well. It's really important for a follower of Jesus to to make a public pledge, to live their lives in obedience to and under the authority of God, to have something uh, physical and and tangible to demonstrate that is just really important and and beautiful. And we also think that's a big deal to have have a physical representation of your new identity as a son or a daughter of the Father, to identify with Jesus' baptism and the moment that the Father spoke over him. So if you've, uh, if you've never entered the waters of baptism as a follower of Jesus, I would highly encourage you to. Uh, hey, conveniently, we're doing baptisms next week. We actually didn't really plan it that way, but it just so happened. Thanks, Jesus. You know, you're helping us out. Uh, you know, if, if, uh, if you don't follow Jesus, though, but you're interested in doing so, um, I, I would love to talk to you about that. Uh, I'll just be standing up here. You can come and, and talk with me after the gathering. Uh, and I would love to just have a discussion about what it means, what it looks like to put your faith and put your trust uh, in Jesus. Now, uh, to the story uh, of John the Baptist. And uh, it's an interesting one. He's a strange fellow. He definitely says some things that catch your attention. He wears weird clothes. No big snake, but he does wear weird clothes. But his story really only makes sense and finds its power when it's within the story of God. When, as Matthew quotes, we understand him as the one who is a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now, uh, John is in the Bible, but his story isn't really uh, that glamorous. After baptizing Jesus, which I assume would probably be the pinnacle of of his life and his ministry, because He's the only one to ever baptize Jesus. Good for him. Uh, Unfortunately for him, after he baptizes Jesus, he's arrested and eventually executed for preaching against the political authority of his day. And yet his is a story that is preparing the way for the Messiah, for Jesus. But preparing, I mean, what is he preparing? The people. But not just the people of Israel coming to hear him in the first century. His voice is one that we still hear today through the biographies of Jesus. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. By finding his story within the largest story of what what God is up to in the world, it's instilled with a sense of purpose, 
meaning and direction. The good, the bad, and the ugly are all seen differently in light of God's presence and purpose in his life. He is used for bigger things and is still speaking today. For us, us here tonight, our stories will only make sense, only find a purpose, a meaning, when they are placed within the story of God. We have a direction in our lives because of the presence and activity of God within human history. And isn't that like a little bold of me to say? Um, Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, Because God takes our entire story, our past, which was already happened to us, our present and our future, and speaks into it. There's a transformation that takes place when our story is placed within the story of God. So the deep, uh, crushing pain that you've experienced, that you've gone through, the darkness, you know, the, the things you hide from everybody else in your life, uh, just, you know, the, the stuff that you would just die if anybody else knew about you. God speaks into each of those areas, and he wants to bring good out of the darkness. It's his way of undermining the evil that we experience and have even done ourselves in our lives. But he also speaks to, into the good that a person experiences and, and gives a new perspective about it. Good times or good things or good people are not things to hold on to out of a fear that they'll slip away, you know, being anxious about anyone or anything that, that might take away the things that we hold dear. It's instead to be enjoyed as a gift, as a, as a present, with an open hand, you know, delight in it because it won't last forever. Your baby won't always be a baby. I see you back there, baby. You won't always be a baby. Your dream job will end at some point. It's called retirement. Money comes, money goes, people move away or people pass away. There's a freedom in saying, God, you give good gifts. I don't know how long I'll have for this, but I just wanna say thank you so much for this time, for this thing. For this season. And then when the good times take a turn for the worse, you, you're not alone, locked out of the house in the rain and the cold. God is still with you in, in those times. Our lives finally reach a climax, they're, they're pinnacle, not in the American dream being fulfilled or, or all the comforts we can imagine or national security, but when Jesus comes back, when resurrection happens, when the story reaches its final act. The story of God, the Old Testament, the story of John, the story of Jesus, the story of the church, and the story of you. When you follow Jesus, your story becomes intertwined, reimagined, and redirected in the flow of what God is up to in human history. Now, in this story we read tonight, identity plays just a tremendous part John the Baptist, John the Baptist, right? Jesus, the Son of God. Who someone is and what they do in response to their identity is powerful. Ask the question, who are you? Let's talk about Jesus' identity first. Uh, God speaks the identity of Jesus over him. 
This is my son in whom I love. With him I am well pleased. One scholar translate, translates what God says as, This is my priceless son. I am deeply pleased with him. And this is what's amazing about what God speaks over Jesus. Uh, he speaks this over us too. When someone decides to entrust themselves to God and his way of life, they become adopted into God's family. They become his son or daughter. Now, none of us are the son of God like Jesus is. Trust me, you are not. But we can be a son of God, part of God's family. And for 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have understood the words that were spoken over him to be spoken over them as well. God speaks to you and to I. You are my priceless child. I am deeply pleased with you. This is the identity that all followers of Jesus have. Before I am Cameron, the Fred Meyer employee, I am a son of God. Before I am a husband, I am a son of God. Before Hannah is my wife, she is a daughter of God. And when my daughter is finally born, I can't wait. Uh, ooh, <laughs> that's the most reaction I've gotten all day. Posey's, al <laughs> Posey's already more popular than me, great. But before, uh, when my daughter is finally born, uh, before she's my daughter, she is a daughter of God. The identity of being a child of God will change your life, how you view yourself and those around you. And there's more. Uh, when you follow Jesus, not only are you adopted into God's family as his child, he speaks a, a specific identity over you. John was what? The Baptist. He was wired and gifted in a way. God had called him to a specific purpose. He was John the Baptist. You are wired and gifted in a specific way. And God wants to use you in specific ways. I don't want you to miss what Jesus said to John when he objected to baptizing him. You know, Jesus came up to John and said, will you baptize me? John's like, this is blowing my mind. I, I, you sh I should be baptized by you. What are you doing? And Jesus said, hey, just let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. It wasn't just Jesus that needed to be baptized to be obedient to the Father. It was John who needed to do the baptizing in order to be who God had made him to be, to be obedient to his identity. We find our identity by God speaking it over us, and we explore and live into it in partnership with Jesus, empowered to do so through the Holy Spirit. And that's what God wants for you here tonight. With Jesus, you have an identity, child of God, but you also have a specific identity as well. To end tonight, um, can I just talk about what this all looks like actually applied to someone's life? Um, I would like to share with you how, what this has looked like in my life. Is that all right? Uh, cool. Not because God, too bad, it's already going to happen. Not because God will work exactly in your life the way he has and still is in mine, but because it will hopefully help you to see the possibilities of what God can do and what he wants to do. 
So I was doing uh, the practice of silence and solitude a, a, a couple weeks ago, going through the curriculum with my community. And we, we are on the one where uh, you need to take an hour or two and just silence and solitude and list out your fears and pray into them. Um, and so I was doing that, and apparently I'm scared of lot, a lot because I journaled them down. I was like down one side and then down the other side. Um, but it was interesting. It wasn't just like these circumstantial fears that's like, oh, money or, or job or, or something like that. It was uh, really like deep, really, really deep fundamental fears. So I, I, I wrote them all out um, and uh, invited God to speak over them. And I sat there and I listened and I sensed uh, God say, you're a eunuch. I was like, wait, what? Uh, uh, clearly I am not, Lord. You must have delivered that one to the wrong address because I'm not. I have a baby on the way. But to understand uh, why God would say something like that, uh, let me tell you my story. I grew up with uh, two older sisters, a mom, and a dad. Uh, we went to church every weekend. We were enrolled, my sisters and I, in Christian schools, kindergarten through high school. We had a house, a yard, a dog, all of that. Um, I also had a dad who quite frequently abused my sisters and I in every way. I had a mom who was gone 14 hours a day to make sure we kept our house since my dad didn't work. Now, you, you don't have to die to go through hell uh, because I lived it as a kid. Uh, after years of deep and consistent abuse, my dad left and never came back, and I was about eight. Um, my mom didn't know about the abuse, and so she was just left scrambling, trying to figure out how to uh, raise us by herself and, and keep some semblance of, you know, normal. Uh, I remember being uh, nine or ten, so a year or two after my dad left, and, and wanting to be baptized at church. And I remember standing in the waters of the baptismal, um, just like up to here, and the pastor was just uh, to the side of me. And, and before he like dunked me into the water, I remember him whispering to me, "If your dad were here, were still, or if your dad were here, he would be proud of you." Like. Oh, the, the irony, right? Uh, to everyone in our church, um, some, somehow they believed that he was a victim of an elaborate conspiracy that caused him to leave and hopefully one day clear his name. In reality, he had done everything in his power to destroy my concept of God. And it wasn't uh, for another year or two until my sisters broke down and, and told my mom about the years of abuse at the hands of my dad. And so, I mean whoa, the floodgates are open, and what do you do? So as a family, we all went to see a counselor to, to start working through this. And as we were there, uh, we uh, discovered that actually uh, my grandpa, my dad's dad, had abused my aunts. And I was like, whoa, crazy. Um, so I had three sessions alone with this counselor. Uh, he was a dude. And um, I remember one of the sessions, uh, he said something to me that haunted me for about 14 years. He, he said to me, you know, your grandpa was an abuser, your dad was an abuser, you'll probably be an abuser too. <laughs> I know, it's crazy. I was about 12. I was a 12-year-old sitting in his office. Uh, for me, I lived in just terror that my identity was an abuser. 
I didn't have those feelings or inclinations or thoughts or attractions, but I was so scared one day that, I would be, that they would begin and I would be, uh, become my dad. So fast forward uh, over years of really good conversations and tons of prayer and actually like good counseling. There is good, healthy counseling. Um, and I went through it and it was fantastic through tons uh, of God just doing a lot of healing. Um, fast forward to last week and God says, you are a eunuch. And I'm just like, what? Why? Uh, <laughs> This is weird. <laughs> As I prayed through that sentence, I was confronted with the reality of my own frustration and desperate desire to have all of my childhood trauma healed. I don't know how to be a son. When, when my dad was around, he wasn't a dad, and then he left. And my mom was always at work, and when she was home, she was tired. I mean, my sisters and I raised ourselves. And so when God says, I'm his son, there's just something inside of me that responds with just, great, I don't know how to be that. Frustration and guilt and despair set in, and the identity God has given me as his son is hindered and undermined because I don't know how to be a son. But that unit comment uh, wasn't all that the Lord spoke. Uh, God reminded me of a scripture about eunuchs in Isaiah 56. It says, for this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them, I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Eunuchs uh, were men who were either born that way or they were made that way by someone. They weren't allowed into God's temple to experience his presence and join their friends and their neighbors and their family in worship. They didn't get to have kids and, and raise a family. They, they missed out. But what God says here about them is summed up like this. I will give more to you than what was taken from you. You know, uh, my dad took a lot from me. And you may not see it, um, <laughs> my wife does, uh, but I still have a limp, and I still have scars, metaphorically speaking. Uh, God has brought a tremendous amount of healing to me, and I, I just can't tell you how good he's been. Just beyond my wildest hopes and imaginations, he's been so good. But they're still there. But God wants to still use me limp and scars included to live into my identity. You know, uh, my story is, uh, it's tough. And sometimes it's just surreal to even like talk about it. Like, did I really, was that really me? Like, would some adult really say that to a 12 year old? Like, oh geez, but yeah, I guess it was me. Yep, certainly was. But God uh, speaks into it and he's shown me uh, how his story has intertwined with mine in, in just so many ways. You know, when I was baptized and the pastor said to me, if your dad was here, he would be proud of you. Um, that's always been a tainted memory for me. Um, but it's interesting uh, 
something struck me just a, a few days ago when I was studying for this teaching, thinking about Jesus' baptism and uh, my story and, and my baptism. Um, you know, I just felt that the Spirit said, you know, uh, my dad was there watching, proud of me. In fact, that day, my dad spoke over me, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. God has a way of showing up in your story, revealing himself to you in some of the most unexpected ways. But you have to invite him in. I wanted to share all of this uh, with you guys tonight um, just to show you the kinds of things that God does and, and the kinds of things that he says uh, about us. He, he's super creative and, and does it in a lot of different ways, but I just wanted to show you some of the ways that he's chosen to work in my life and, and with my life. And also I wanted to encourage all of you to understand um, that the idea of identity and story is, is often a process. You don't have to have all of the answers uh, at the very beginning. I'm living out, you know, my identity right now as a son, but also this specific thing, the way I'm wired and, and gifted. I, I love to talk to people about Jesus, to, to reach uh, into the dark places and, and bring uh, things to light. And, and so I get to do that right now. Um, but I'm also figuring out more and more uh, the implications of my identity and story and how it shapes me and what God wants to do with it. And I, I honestly hope that um, there's nothing that you can relate to about my story. Uh, and I figure, unfortunately, some of you can. Uh, but I think of, like, my wife, who has a really amazing family. Uh, strong parents, awesome siblings, perfect? No. But uh, amazing, nonetheless. Her story is absolutely nothing like mine. But it's so important for her and for you and, and for myself to ask God things like, where have you been in my life? Where have you been in my life when I didn't even know you were there? Where were you when this ugly, dark, brutal thing happened? What am I wired for? What do you call me? These are questions that will shape the direction of your life and God will answer them. Sometimes the answers come quickly, and sometimes it's a process, but they come, and God speaks an identity over you. You, as my precious child, this is who you are. 